I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verses 6, going through verse 8 this morning, except we're going to do this in three Sundays. So don't let the long outline scare you. I have three weeks to complete it. I put the outline together, and I looked at it, and I said, okay, experience tells me that if it's more than one page, I'm in trouble. So <laughs> I looked at it and said, We're, we'll do three Sundays here because that's what it'll take. By the way, I'll be preaching next Sunday also. And uh, we're going to be talking about life in the body of Christ next week as well. But we'll be together for that. Um, I want to give you a sense of context where the Apostle Paul is in Romans 12. Because, you know, as you know, um, Romans 12 is that place where we turn the corner from teaching the truth about who we are in Jesus Christ and what he's given us to practicing that life of Christ at home, in the community, in the church, and, and in the world, living out the life of Jesus Christ in us. It's, it's that pivotal point where we go from theory to practice. Not that the first 11 chapters are theory, they're the truths of Jesus Christ in salvation. But chapter 12 says, okay, this is how it looks as you live it out. And we begin, logically, by making ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service of worship. Some people are disappointed in Christianity. They're disappointed in God. They're, you know, they say, I became a Christian, I didn't get the abundant life. I became a Christian, things aren't working the way I thought they would. Well, friends, there is a, there is a key. And it's, it's not difficult to understand. It may be difficult to do, but it's not difficult to understand. And the key is this. Jesus Christ will provide everything he promised, provided you give him 100% of yourself. He doesn't play games. There's no compromise. You know, he, won't, he will not provide that abundant life that he has promised, that rich and full life in Jesus Christ is not available to those who want to play at the edge of the pool. You've got to jump in with all your heart. And Paul says the place that that the practical outworking of the life of Jesus in me begins is the place of total, committed, 100% sold-out sacrifice to Jesus Christ. When you're willing to be a living sacrifice, then he engages you fully. I'm not saying that people aren't saved who aren't sold out. I think it's hard to be saved without selling out, but... Long way, compromise kind of sneaks in. Jesus told Peter, who'd been following him for three years, you know, you need to have your feet washed. And you don't have to have your whole body washed, but you need your feet washed because you've been out there running around in the dust. <laughs> and, and we're like that. We have to have that regular updating of a commitment and, and a devotion to Jesus Christ. And, and so it's possible to be a Christian and be half-hearted because you've been playing in the world and you haven't been keeping the accounts close. You haven't been staying up to date with your sold-out commitment to God. And as a consequence, then things don't, aren't going quite the way you thought they would. And so you find yourself in a compromised position. And that's what Paul's talking about. You, you begin the practical application of the life of Jesus Christ by selling out to him without reservation. And then he says you need to think about who you are. You need to realize who you are in him, who he's made you to be. You need to have that biblical self-image. Then you need to recognize that you're in a family. You, you're, this is not Lone Ranger Christianity. You're in a family. You're in a church. You're in a body of Christ. I'm not talking about the organization. I'm not talking about the building. I'm not talking about the membership list. I'm talking about being in a family that we call the church of the living God. You're in a family. You're interdependent. You need each other. You cannot grow and develop in Christ 
running around out there as a lone ranger, like an island, doing your own thing, you're not going to develop in Jesus Christ. It's just not going to happen because he is most obviously present in his body. And that is when the church family comes together. And so Paul has made that point. He's going to talk to us through the text this morning about spiritual gifts. And then he's going to begin to hit what always happens. The, the moment we realize who we are, who Jesus is, who we are, who the church is, and we engage, guess what happens? <laughs> Conflict. Uh, you know, struggle. We start running into each other. Friends, that's how sanctification practically occurs. You know, you bang around. You, you, you start uh, making mistakes. You, you, you think you've got it, and, and you go to, you know, to execute to, to put into practice what your spiritual gift, and all of a sudden you're running into somebody else and their spiritual gift, or at least that's what you both think. And then before you know it, there's stuff developing. And so verse, uh, you know, I'm in Ephesians, that won't work, but I think it's uh, verse 9. Verse 9, um, Paul says, uh, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what's evil, cling to what is good. All of a sudden he's beginning to talk to us about interpersonal relationships. And then that extends beyond the church into the world. And then you realize you're living in a, in a country, in a government, you know? And there's those crazy people in Washington. Or if you happen to be in Russia, it's those crazy people in Moscow. Or, you know, if you're in Saudi Arabia, it's those crazy people. And on and on it goes. We're, we're in a world that is not exactly uh, squaring up with God's will and purposes, and yet there's, there's a biblical answer to how we behave as citizens of a secular government, chapter 13. And then you come to church and you find some people are, man, they got more rules than, as my dad used to say, Carter's got liver pills. You know? How many of you are old enough to know who Carter's liver pills are? <laughs> You know, they got more rules, they, they've got all kind of regulations, they drive you nuts. And then those of you that have all the rules, you're saying, oh, those libertines at the church, man, they, they just don't pay any attention to anything, they do everything. And, and Paul talks in Romans 14, how do you get along in the family when you have totally different viewpoints on how to do it? What makes holiness? Very practical stuff. How do you live in the body? How do you live in the world? How do you live in the government? How do you live in the family of God when you have different ideas? Men made denominations. God did not make denominations. Men made denominations. Uh, there's nothing we can do about it. We've got them. But I have a feeling when, uh, when we get in the trenches in the times to come toward the end times when things get tough, those distinctions are going to blur quite quickly and uh, the true followers of Jesus Christ are going to find each other again. And whether you're a Baptist or a Methodist or Assembly of God or Church of Christ, whatever, it's not going to matter. Because we're going to be back together. God did not make denominations. God made a church in Jesus Christ. And when we come together as a church in Jesus Christ, we do have different ideas. We have different viewpoints. We come from different backgrounds. We have different gauges of what holiness looks like. When, and, and God throws us all together and says, guess what? I want to be in the middle of you and teach you how to love each other. I want you to manifest. My... You know, Jesus did not pray in his great high priestly prayer, God make them all Wesleyans. God, I pray that they'll all be Presbyterians. Lord, if they could, you know, Father, if they could only get it, the sacraments. I, I want them to have the sacraments. They need, to, they need to understand predestination. What he prayed was that they would be one, even as we are one. I, Father, in you, you and me, together in them, that they would be one. He prayed for unity. He prayed for unity. We're a family. We're a body. And in that family, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, 
He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Paul is giving an illustration here. He's talking to a church that he has not personally visited yet, and he's reminding them that not only are they a body and interdependent members one of another, but they have been given gifts that differ according to the grace given each person. And he only names a few of them. We know that because he names more of them in other places. And so he's giving them just a reminder. Okay, some of you have teaching, some prophecy, some giving, some some serving, whatever. Just do this with all your heart within the body of Christ. And the point that he's making is, each one of you has been given a gift of the Spirit, at least one, for the body of Christ. Now, I want to use some other scripture passages to correlate with this so that we get a fuller picture, because we haven't talked about spiritual gifts in a long time. And uh, that's why I'm going to take a few Sundays to do this, because this subject, although it's only three verses in Romans 12, is a subject that bears some reminding. So today I'm going to cover the first two points in the outline. The next time we're going to talk about those specific gifts. I have a feeling that may take two Sundays to go over the, the gifts of the Spirit and what they each are and what they mean. And then, finally, we're going to to wrap up with their practical application in the body of Christ. But the the classical passage of Scripture that talks about spiritual giftedness is in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. And I want you to turn there with me just a few pages over. And I want you to look at chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. We're going to read down through 11 or 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And if, uh, if you have your outline, uh, it's a good idea to look in your Bible, but in case you haven't discovered this yet, Herb always prints the scriptures in the margins of the outline. So uh, inside page, there's these verses from Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Let me just stop there a moment and underscore that word manifestation. What does manifestation mean? It's one of those biblical words, you know. It's not totally biblical, but, well, it's biblical and some more. What? Uh, appearance? Yeah, it's an appearance. It's, a, it's, an, it's an opening, an uncovering, bringing it to the surface so we can see it. Manifest means shine out. Okay, manifestation of what? Your gift? Manifestation of the Spirit. Spiritual gifts are supposed to unveil, uncover, expose the Holy Spirit where we can see Him. How many of you have ever seen the Holy Spirit? You probably haven't. If you have, I need to check with you afterwards. Okay, But if you've seen his work, remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? The Spirit blows where it wills, and we see, the, like the wind, we see the result. We see the result. You don't see the wind, you see the effect of the wind. You feel it. You see the the trees swaying, because you know, oh, that's wind. But you don't see wind, you feel it and experience its effect. The manifestation of the Spirit is when the Holy Spirit is operating in you in such a way that people see Him. So we need to, we need to remember that, because we'll come back to it a bit. For to one is given the word of wisdom... Through the Spirit to another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit to another, faith by the same Spirit to another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit to another. <laughs> My Bible sticks. To another, the effecting of miracles. That's what happens when you preach with a cough drop in your mouth. You didn't want to know that, did you? To another, distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each individual just as 
he wills. Now, one of the first things that we need to recognize when we come to the subject of spiritual gifts is you don't get to choose. You get what the Holy Spirit gives you. He's the one who chooses your gift. Paul says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. He says, we ought to want them. And I'm telling you here this morning, as a church family, we ought to want the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our presence. We ought to want spiritual gifts. And he says, if you're going to be choosy, well, you really, you really ought to want to prophesy. I mean, if, if you want to do anything, bring forth the message of God. I'll explain that in a couple weeks, what that means. But, sorry, but bring forth the message. But he says, desire spiritual gifts, especially you can prophesy, but recognize that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the choice. You get the gift that he gives you. Now, the other thing that I want to bring out is very clear in the passage, the Holy Spirit distributes to each one individually as he wills, and it's also in Romans, to everyone is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's, it's throughout Paul's writings, every one of you has at least one spiritual gift. You may not know what it is. I, I recognize that because sometimes we're just kind of, we don't get it right away. But you have one. If you're a Christian, you have one. Your spiritual gift came to you when you became a Christian. You may have gotten others since then. You may have gotten more than one. You may have had a, a, an amazing eruption of spiritual manifestation the day you were filled with the Spirit. But if you're a child of God, you have at least one spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit has given you. And I hope you can take that by faith. Because if you can't, you're, you're actually denying the teaching of Scripture. You know, some people say, I don't have any gifts. Yes, you do. You have a spiritual gift. And if you don't have any clue what it is, um, my first suggestion to you is ask God what it is. Okay? And, and it may come through confirmation of other people and other things. But God will show you if you want to know. If you want to live for him and you want to know, he will show you. I don't recommend going out and taking a spiritual gift test right away. I'll say why in a minute. But, but if you want to know what it is, ask God, because you have it. That's the first thing. We do not choose our gift. The Holy Spirit chooses us, but every one of us has one. The second thing I want us to understand this morning is our gifts of the Spirit are post-conversion. What do I mean by that? You did not have your spiritual gift before you became a Christian. It's not possible. You can't have a spiritual gift if you're not a spiritual person. You did not have your spiritual gift before you became a Christian. You say, well, the gift I'm using in the church is the gift I've been using all my life. That's my gift. I, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. I'm a fixer-upper, I'm a helper-outer, I'm a whatever. Well, I'm sorry. That's very likely not your spiritual gift. Because if you're doing the same thing the same way now that you were doing before you were saved, that is not your spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts come to spiritual people. You're not spiritual till you're born again. Then you have the Spirit living in you. Now you can have a spiritual gift, because it is a gift of the Spirit. Some of the reasons I say that are, first of all, there's a spiritual principle. God is not in the business of improving the flesh. You know, He's not in the business of shoring up your natural self. He does not want to fix you you know, as, as a lost person, okay, now you're saved, you're going to heaven, your sins are forgiven, now let's dust off your abilities a little bit and, and dust off some of your talents and we'll clean them up and, and we'll use them for the kingdom. 
um, and we're just going to kind of improve you a little bit. God does not improve the flesh. He has one remedy for flesh. It must die. He hates the garment spotted by the flesh. He does not want a church full of fleshly people doing fleshly things, fleshly ways. And if you haven't caught on to what I'm saying yet, um, this is one of the great problems with the church in America today. Most churches, full of people who have professed Christ as their Lord and Savior, are now operating with the natural talents of well-intentioned people who want to work for God to the best of their ability. And churches are full of people like that. Well-intentioned people who want to take their natural talents and work for God to the best of their ability. And God's judgment on that kind of behavior is it's natural, it's fleshly, I'm not interested. And I want to tell you that there are churches across America that are operating that way today. And I want to go a step further. I want to say that those churches are traditional, liturgical, denominational, independent, dispensational, Baptist, Alliance, Pentecostal, Assemblies, Holy Spirit, Holy Rolling, off the charts, pew jumping, all in the flesh. They're doing it in their natural power. They're organized in the flesh. They're operating with their talents in the flesh. They're doing the work of God for God to the best of their ability. And we're all falling flat on our face. Why is it that churches, man, this is not my outline. Why is it that churches who have the best marketing have the best growth? Why do you think that is? Because you can sell church like you can sell Coke. Not the powder, the liquid. You can sell church the same way you can sell Coca-Cola or a Nintendo or PS3 or somebody help me out here. I'm dating myself. <laughs> PlayStation 3, whatever. You can sell church like that. It's not Holy Spirit anointed, Spirit filled, power church. It's just mass marketing and it works. Because we're gullible. We buy into it. We buy Coca-Cola or Pepsi or whatever you want. We buy those products and we buy those churches. And little churches that, can't, that don't have a big marketing plan can't go, well, we're better than that. Look how small we are. We're not doing anything. Because we don't have a marketing program, and so we're not doing anything, because we don't have the Spirit either. If you don't have the Spirit, you better have a marketing plan. And if you don't have one, you're stuck. How many people were in that upper room on the day of Pentecost that in one powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit went from 120 to 3,000 to 8,000 to filling the city to spreading all over Judea and Samaria and going to the uttermost parts of the empire within 20 years. How did that happen? They didn't have radio. They didn't have television. They didn't have marketing plans. They didn't have ad agencies. They didn't have branding. Can you imagine that? The apostles could not brand themselves with special letterhead and slogans. How did they ever do it? How did it ever work? Because they had the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know this morning that what 
spiritual giftedness is all about is coming together as the family of God and letting the Holy Spirit show himself through you in some way so that his presence and his power is obvious that this is God. It's unwise to assume that our spiritual gift will naturally follow our aptitudes, talents, skill set, or occupation. What do we do as a church? What do most churches do? Oh, you're an accountant. Let's make you the treasurer. Oh, you're a great businessman. Let's put you on the board. You're a good manager. Let's put you in charge of managing something. You're a great children's teacher. Let's put you in charge of teaching uh, first through third grade Awana. Let's, let's make you the star of that. Let's give you these capacities because you do this so well out there. That must be your ability. Friends, that is not how the church is supposed to be ordered. Your natural talents, your natural abilities, your aptitudes, your occupation, your skill set do not necessarily comprise your spiritual gift. That's what I said just a moment ago. You got your gift after you became a Christian. You may have been a teacher long before you came to know Christ. Listen, I came up in one of the best elementary schools in the state of Florida. It was that by rating. I still remember the first and last names of my first four teachers, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. I know their names. They had a powerful impact on my life. They were amazing teachers. They inspired me. They encouraged me. They nurtured me. I was a little bit of an oddball and, and uh, kind of a weird student. They didn't diagnose ADD back then, but they, they knew that I had a lot of energy and and not that I was bouncing out of my seat all the time, but I just, I didn't want to follow the directions. I wanted to go learn something else. I got what they were telling me in about three minutes. Now give me something new. They knew how to nurture that. They let me go within certain parameters so that I could develop. They were fantastic teachers. To my knowledge, they weren't Christians. But they were skilled teachers. They were good educators. I had some good teachers in junior high. I had some, some good teachers in high school. Teachers that inspired you, that motivated you, that wanted you to... And they were, they were excellent. That does not mean that if they got saved and came to the church, they would have the gift of teaching. They knew how to impart information. They knew how to stimulate the student. They knew how to, to feed your mind. And so the first thing that we have a tendency to do is we take that talented person in the church and we plug them in and we say, well, we've got an adult Bible study that we need you to teach. Man, you are such a good teacher. We need you to teach the study. And they come in and they take all of their training and education, all their background, all their, all their classwork and experience and how to, how to help you learn. And they prepare the lesson and they come and people say, man, that's a good teacher. Man, I'm learning so much. I'm gaining so much knowledge. But I want to tell you something, folks. God is not about educating us. Only. It's not his goal to just fill up our knowledge bank. He wants to change our lives. An encounter with his word should be transformational. It should affect our heart and our spirit. We should be different people every time we walk out of a sermon or a Bible study or a classroom. We should be different. There should be a little bit more Jesus coming out of us and a little bit less of Paul Martin. And, and there should be transformation going on in my life. And the amazing thing is, is that someone else may come to know Jesus Christ and be full of the Holy Spirit, and they've never had a course in education in their life. They've never taught anything. And they have a hunger. God's given them a hunger for the Word. They get into the Word. It starts to come alive to them. They can't wait to share what they're learning. And, and they're just telling everybody. And all of a sudden, people are gathering around them, and, and they're explaining what God is giving them. And, 
And, and all of a sudden these people are growing and learning and being changed. How? Because that person has the spiritual gift of teaching. And it's changing people's lives because they're filled with the Spirit and gifted to be a teacher. Now, God may use you. I want to bring balance to this. God may use you. You, you, may, be, you may have wanted to be a teacher all your life, and God may anoint you to be a teacher in the church. But it's still a spiritual gift that he gives you after conversion with an anointing that comes on you afterward. After all, when God called me to preach, he spoke to me from the call of Jeremiah. And this is what God said to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I have consecrated you and appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. In other words, God is saying, Jeremiah, I was there when you were conceived. I... I, I've known your name. I knew you. God is also in our aptitudes and skills and abilities. Go back and, and read uh, the, the Israelites in the wilderness building the tabernacle and how God said, I've given to these people the ability to work with, with metals and make jewels, and I've given these people the ability to make fine tapestry, and I've given these people the ability uh, to, to do the woodworking, and I've given them these talents. So God also is in our aptitudes, talents, and abilities. And many times God does bring a convergence of these things together in some way, but they come in unusual ways. I've, I, I've shared my testimony with you. I was so stage fright, so tongue-tied, and so nervous that when I was in high school and I was asked to, to do something in front of the classroom that required opening my mouth, it scared the life out of me. My heart would pound. My throat would go dry. I, I couldn't speak. I literally couldn't speak. I'm not talking about stammering in the midst of fear. I'm talking about being dumbstruck. I couldn't get a word out. And I was like that. The night God said, get up and tell 300 people here <clears throat> what I've done for you. And we had that Moses conversation. What are you talking about? I can't do that. Who made your mouth? Here I am. Within a year, I was preaching to crowds of over a thousand. Of that moment, when I couldn't read a current event in a history class, God had me preaching outdoors to crowds of one in 2,000 people. How does that happen? That's a spiritual gift. You know, that's a spiritual gift. Yes, were there aptitudes and stuff there in my life that, that merge? Yeah, but God did something that only he could do. And, and man, I tell you, I, I give him all the credit. I give him all the credit. When you go out of here on a Sunday morning and say it was a good sermon, Pastor, I really appreciate the way you teach. You know what? I know where that comes from. I love doing it. I'm so grateful God's privileged me this way. But I tell you what, it's his. Because before he touched me, I couldn't say two words in front of a group that made sense. I couldn't even read. It petrified me. I lived in fear that I might get called on. That's who I was. And Jesus did something else. So we cannot assume that our skill set, our abilities, our natural aptitudes are going to necessarily be our spiritual gift. Because it may not be. Our gifts are spiritual. They're from the Holy Spirit. They are supposed to be supernatural. Supernatural. Not the ordinary thing, but supernatural. I remember a fellow that came to, to our college as a teacher. He was going to be in the music department. He had a master's degree and, and, and training in music performance. He was a trumpet major. And I remember the first time he ever played for us. I mean, professing Christian man, he wouldn't have gotten into college as a teacher if he couldn't pass the interview. 
and he played for chapel. And he triple-tongued his way all the way through one of the fastest, liveliest Christian marches that I've ever heard. And two things impressed me. I was, I was amazed by his natural talent and amazing technique in the trumpet. And I was left totally unmoved by the whole piece. All I saw was him showing off his expertise. That's all I could see. And every time that man played, for the rest of my time at Tekoa, every time he played, all I saw was a good trumpeter playing the trumpet. And never once was I moved in my spirit to the sense that God had anything to do with what was going on. It was really sad to me. What happens when you have a natural talent? What happens when you have a honed talent, a trained talent, a good skill? Well, if you give it to God as a living sacrifice, he may take it up and anoint it and make it a powerful instrument for his glory. But as long as you keep it, all it is is a talent. And, it, and you may be good. I love to go to the symphony. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. I love to hear the music of the symphony. But when I look down on that stage and, and, and listen to those incredible musicians playing with excellence and quality and, and feeling, they don't know Jesus. That moves my human soul, but it does not deepen my spirit in the sense of spiritual development, other than the fact that I worship God for the gifts of music. But they're not spiritual gifts. They're talents. They're abilities. And if you have one, Sarah sang beautifully, and you did move me, Sarah. I'm touched by your singing. And and by the ministry of our musicians. Russ, his trumpet playing this morning, the 8 o'clock service especially gripped me. You can take those and give them to God, and he can use them in wonderful ways. But a spiritual gift is a supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit in a special way. Not only are spiritual gifts not our natural aptitudes and abilities, um, they're to be exercised in the context of the church family. You know, I, I've heard for years people say this, not, not just here, but everywhere I go. I hear people say this. My, my gift is being a homemaker. My gift is being a, you know, a godly father. That's for the next 18 years you won't see much of me because I'm going to be a father. First of all, being a homemaker, being a godly father is not a spiritual gift. Being a, home, be, being a mother or a father doesn't require anything of the Spirit at all. In fact, anymore you don't even have to be married. All you have to do to be a parent is to have a child. Now you're a parent. That's not a spiritual gift. It's a biological event. And if you're going to be a godly father, guess where your family's going to be? In the church. I, it, it just blows me away that, that we're worshiping family today in, in Christian circles. We're worshiping family to the point that we don't become involved in the body of Christ because we've got to nurture our families. What absurdity. Whoever sold us that bill of goods? The family should be nurtured in the family. Of God. If you're going to grow in Jesus Christ as a person, and you're going to grow as a family, you're going to do it in the context of the body of Christ. You know, I, I said this to the, to the first group, and I say it even more to you, because there's, there's younger families here today, and, and, and I encourage you, and I say to you, listen, if, if you have to make a choice between the community soccer league or Awana, because the, the meetings are on Monday night, you need to be in Awana. 
You need to have your family in the church family. Every opportunity you get, you need to have your family in the church. Because it is the whole body of Christ that ministers to the family, and it's in that context that you will grow spiritually. You may go out into the world and have some ministry some other place, and have some be salt and light in other venues, and that's all right. After you've done what you must do, earn a living, do your homework, go to school, whatever it is, after you've done your job, and you are involved in the life of the church, if you have time for some other things, that's fine. We also need to be salt and light in the community. But the church is where you grow. It's in the content. I'm not talking about the building, the chairs, or the, or the organization. I'm talking about the family. That's why I wanted to emphasize next Sunday, friends, it's family time. It's family time. This is when we're together. Small group is family time. Church picnic is family time. When we announce a church picnic, there ought to be 250, 300 people there. Everybody in our church should come out for family time. We need to play together. We need to cook together. We need to eat together. We need to be together. We need to get irritated with one another on the volleyball court together and learn how Jesus deals with it. We need to have kids get into a fight over some game or toy and have the parents work it out in Jesus, in the church. We need that. We need that. We need the family. That's where the body of Christ grows and develops. Serving the community, serving our families, serving in the parent-teacher organization, serving you know, in the local fire department, serve, that's not spiritual gift time. And doing what everybody ought to do is not spiritual gift time. Being a parent, being a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, you know, that's not spiritual gifts. God will use you, anoint you, empower you, bless you. That's life, friends. Everybody does life. But you have a gift that is given to you for the body of Christ. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians uh, 4. I'm going to wrap up here in just a minute. I'm almost done. But Ephesians 4, I just want to hit the high spot here and remind you of what we touched on last week. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, Paul says, As a result, that is, this coming together as a church family, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him, Jesus, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, listen to this, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies. Your gift and the manifestation of it is the glue that holds the family of God together. And if you're not participating, we're, we have a hole in our family. And we are disjointed. We're missing something. By that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There is no other way for this to happen except in the family of God. Now, I don't care how you do church. We, we do church the way you're used to doing church. We have a building, you come sit in a chair and you listen to me preach. But that's not church, that's just a part. I don't care how you do it or what you call it. I don't care if you sit around in a living room and 35 or 40 of you gather in a home. I don't care if you gather in small groups, as long as you're connected to bigger groups. I don't care how you do church. But church is where the family of God comes together as the people of Jesus 
and they share his life with one another in a way that you grow in Christ. And there's no other way that's going to happen like that. I want to be reverent when I say this, but but I want you to realize, in terms of the person of God, when you became a Christian, you received the Holy Spirit in your life, and you have all of Jesus. So, So don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But when it comes to ministry, you only have a piece of Jesus. There's not a person in this room who has all of the gifts of the Spirit. There's not a family in this room that has all of the gifts of the Spirit. You probably don't even have half of them altogether. Maybe not even a third. No one has all the gifts of the Spirit. You have a piece of Jesus in terms of ministry. And when you come together and you bring your peace and someone else brings their peace and you are devoted to him through the Holy Spirit and he can operate through you to manifest that part of Jesus, guess what happens? Jesus shows up in the midst of us in his whole person. All of his ministry, all of his presence, All of his power, all of his work shows up in the midst of us because he's present. And we must bring that together if we're going to be the family of God. Friends, I'm talking about a supernatural ministry. I shared an illustration in the first hour. I just kind of want to close with that as a a prelude to anticipating the discussion of spiritual gifts. Many people, I even find, you know, spiritual gift inventories. The problem with spiritual gift inventories is when you take them, they base most of your answers on your experience, your background, your training, whatever. And sometimes they even alter the names. Instead of the word of knowledge, they call it the gift of knowledge. Or instead of the word of wisdom, they call it the gift of wisdom. And so really astute business people have wisdom. So that must be their spiritual gift. And, and brains, you know, brainiacs who are always studying and learning stuff, well, they, they must have knowledge. That must be their gift. You know? And I'm not talking here bringing to church something you got from Wikipedia. Okay? I'm talking about something else. It's not the gift of knowledge, it's the gift of word of knowledge. It is a supernatural occurrence. When Peter looked at Ananias and said to him publicly what only he and his wife had talked about in secret, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit For you have not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias was shaken to his boots and dropped dead on the spot in judgment from God. How did Peter know what Ananias and Sapphira had only contrived over in the privacy of their home? They had made an agreement, if you're not familiar with the story, they had made an agreement that in that early church communalism, those who sold everything they had and gave it to the church became a part of the church provision. And Ananias and Sapphira said, we want to look like we're participating. That's that, everybody that does that is getting all kinds of attaboys. We want to look good. We want to get on the church dole. It'll be our nest egg. Nobody will know. We'll sell off the property. And we'll tell them that we're bringing everything. And we're going to keep back. And they said, good plan. Way to go, Ananias. I always knew you had it in you. And so Ananias comes to Peter and says, we sold property. Here's the, here's the price. And the Holy Spirit said to Peter, 
Ananias is lying to you. He and his wife conspired to hold back part of the price of the land, and this isn't all of it. And Peter said to him, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? How did he know that? Word of knowledge. A word of knowledge. The Holy Spirit told him a secret that was not known until that moment. Word of wisdom. It's not always the most astute business person that in the midst of a church decision has wisdom. It may be the, the person that has trouble managing their own checkbook. The person that, that is struggling with their kids. The person who doesn't seem to be making good choices in life. And, and we're in the midst of prayer, and all of a sudden, <clears throat> they say, you know, it just seems to me that this is what we ought to do. And everybody goes, wow, that has kind of the sense of God on it. Where'd that come from? They're not that smart. Well, it doesn't have to be them. It's the Holy Spirit using them. And he has chosen the weak things of the world to make us look like fools on purpose so that we won't get all on our high horse and say, you know what, I got this thing all figured out. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is a supernatural ministry in the life of this church. You have a gift. You don't know what it is, do not miss the Sunday after and the Sunday after. Do not miss the next several weeks. Ask God to show you. Because if we're going to be what God really wants us to be, we're going to be a church where when we come together, Jesus shows up in the person of everyone sharing the life of the Spirit. It happens at coffee time. It happens in the foyer. It happens in the assembly. It happens in the parking lot. It happens when the family comes together and Jesus is present and the Holy Spirit is free to work. Father, I pray that you'd open our eyes to spiritual truth and that we would earnestly desire spiritual gifts because we want you. And this is the way that you have chosen to manifest yourself. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.